Welcome to the Bingham Group Podcast. Today's episode features BG advisor Andy Cates and his analysis of the recent Texans for Public Justice report. Fault Lines. The report breaks down disparities in campaign contributions under Austin's nascent 10-1 council district system. The Austin-based group timed the report to try to boost the prospects of a proposed city charter amendment that would create a new voucher-based public campaign finance system. This discussion was originally recorded on the 18th of July, 2018. My name is Andy Cates. Uh, I'm a Bingham Group advisor. I'm an attorney in Austin. Uh, generally, I focus on campaign finance and lobby law. Um, I have done a previous podcast on uh, Austin's lobby code and campaign finance code, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit today about the fault lines report from the Texans for Public Justice uh, that take that talks a little bit about the Austin campaign uh, finance contributions uh, that that came out uh, from 2016 in the first 10-1 election, and a little bit about the uh, Austin American Statesman article that that reported on it. So, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, this is the first report that's come out regarding campaign cash, campaign contributions uh, that took place in 2016, the first time that we did have a, a 10-1 election, and first time we've had it in place. And so this report is, is fairly uh, important in, in terms of you know, what should we expect? What, what problems are we seeing occurring? Uh, what trend lines are, are taking place here uh, in the city, uh, especially as it regards to, to campaign contributions and campaign finance? Um, overall, it seems that, um, to be honest, it's not terribly surprising. Um, the, the richer segments of the city uh, contribute the most. The uh, lower income... Uh, largely minority districts in this city uh, contribute the least, and the middle's in the middle. Uh, and that's something that uh, you could pretty well expect all the way across the board. Um, but some of the recommendations and some of the new ideas that are coming out, um, I'll discuss in a little while, uh, could potentially make things worse. So uh, the first thing I'd like to do is go into the report itself. And uh, you know, the first thing that it says is that individuals living in Austin's 10 council districts supplied 78% of all of the money contributed uh, in last the last election in 2016. Uh, 78% came from people living within Austin city limits. 17% came from people living outside of Austin city limits. Uh, 1% from people who they couldn't tell where they were from. And 4% came from political action committees and, and business entities. So first, I want to dig into that really quickly. Um, it is fairly uh, impressive, really, to me that 78, almost 80% of all of the money given during this election came from individuals. Um, that is a, a testament to Austin's uh, code, um, to some of the requirements in the code, whether you agree with them or not. Um, it's, it's very interesting that almost 80% of all the contributions came from individuals, and only 4% came from political action committees. 17% um, came from outside of the of Austin city limits, and um, you may remember that there is a $30,000 aggregate cap per candidate 
um, from any money that comes from outside of the Austin city limits. This, uh, if, you will, if you will remember, uh, was upheld in the Don Zimmerman case against uh, the city of Austin in, in the last few months. So, um, you know, 17% of the cash is, is probably about right, um, considering that that was upheld. So it says, you know, that the Austin's three most affluent and least racially diverse council districts are 8, 9, and 10. Uh, they, they accounted for 68% of all contributions that came in the door uh, for all candidates. And in contrast, residents of the four lowest income minority districts, 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, contributed just 8% uh, of, of all contributions across the board in the city. One thing I do want to point out, though, is that, you know, as I said, it's not terribly surprising. Um, the, the more affluent you are, the more uh, potentially, uh, the more disposable income you have, and probably the more um, politically inclined you are, um, and, and, and more active in engaging in political races, and able to give money towards political races that aren't going to be, you know, tax deductible. Um, what is interesting, though, uh, specifically looking at District 10, uh, which is Austin's most affluent, um, whitest, I think we can just say that out loud, um, they gave District 10, uh, residents from District 10 gave 44% of all money accounted for in campaign contributions during the 2016 cycle. And that is a lot. That sounds like a lot. Um, and it's because it is. Uh, but if you dig into the numbers a little bit more, two-thirds of the money that came from residents of District 10 went to District 10 candidates. And one-third went to outside candidates. Okay, so, so most of that, more than most of that money went to candidates within their own, within their own district. And there were at least four different candidates. So, you know, you have, you, you combine uh, the fact that it's a very wealthy area with the fact that it's a hotly contested race. And yeah, you're going to end up with a lot of money spent. We see that around the board. I mean, I, I just saw this morning uh, a, a, an article that said that um, Angela Paxton spent $12 million between her and, and the attorney general, her husband, uh, to win her Senate race, which is the most expensive Senate race in the history of Texas. You know, we are seeing an increase in the amount of money needed to be spent to win elections pretty much across the board in the state of Texas. So it's not surprising that people in affluent areas where there's going to be a hotly contested race for uh, a, a city council member that will represent that area at the local level, everybody says politics is local, um, they're going to spend a lot of money on those races. And so it, it, it just, for me at least, it makes sense. Now. One of the other things that I did want to mention about this um, is on page five of this report, there, there are two different bar graphs, and, and they are important bar graphs to, to dig into, in my estimation, um, because I think it, it shows a little bit more clearly um, what, the, what the issue is, um, potentially what the problem is, um, and, and what, what it may not be. So basically the, the second bar graph on here shows candidate contributions by district. This is overall money in the door 
um, by district, and it's broken up from low-income districts, middle-income districts, and high-income districts. This is showing that overall money in the door for candidates in low-income districts, there's more money spent from residents in high-income districts. So if you're a candidate in District 1, 2, 3, or 4, you will have received more money from high-income districts than you received from uh, really the combination of low or middle-income districts uh, as a whole. Uh, middle-income, about the same. Um, basically across the board, any candidate for election uh, at the city council level in 2016 received more money from higher income districts, or the highest income districts, than from the other two low or middle income districts around the city combined. So these high, uh, highly affluent areas of the city are basically giving more money than anybody else combined, um, in, in, even outside of their districts. However, that being said, the first bar graph on here shows the same, you know, it's broken up the same way, low, middle, and high income districts overall. And it shows the number of, the amount of contributions from that district. So in high income districts, it's no surprise that in high in income districts, the residents of those high income areas give the most to the high income districts. Like I said, you know, District 10 had four different uh, people running for city council. Obviously, it's going to spike the number of people in that area that give money in those races. What's most interesting, though, even though each candidate individually received more money from outside of their district, uh, from the higher income districts into theirs, the district level residents overall gave more money to their own pay uh, uh, socioeconomic area uh, than to others. So what I mean by that is high-income residents gave to high-income districts more often. Middle-income districts residents gave more money to middle-income districts candidates than to high-income and low-income combined districts. Same thing with low-income. The low-income district residents gave more money to low-income uh, district candidates than to high and to middle combined. So that's, that's saying that even though there's a lot of money coming out of these high-income districts into others, generally speaking, the people that live in the low-income and middle-income districts are still giving more often to the people that represent the low-income and middle-income areas respectively. And that's something that wasn't really reflected in the report or in, uh, in, I mean it's stated in the report but it's not really harped on and it definitely wasn't brought up in the, in the uh, reporting. And I think that's interesting because it's not just, you know, certainly they're not just giving money to their own candidates. Um, they may be giving to other candidates in other areas that are still considered low income uh, and it reflects that here they may not just be giving to uh, their own candidates. One of the other interesting 
issues and um, you know I, I've used this a number of times in my own in my own life um, and I've said it multiple times in my professional life recently is that it's not an excuse but it's an explanation and you know wherever you fall on this issue uh, you know it, it's not trying to excuse that uh, the system as it was built and as it was set up, we're now seeing the consequences of, and we're seeing uh, the cons. You know, they everybody says elections have consequences. This is a consequence of splitting everybody up into different districts. Um, you know, the people that live in low-income districts are less likely to vote, uh, and they are less likely to give money. And so, uh, in an in an era where you have to raise a large amount of money to run. You've got, you've got to find it somewhere. And it's no surprise to me that you're going to find that from those high-income districts. The number of donors by district uh, overall is drastic. You know, District 10, um, which was, you know, the district that gave 44% of all money, uh, they had almost 1,200 individual donors uh, by the reports. District 2, where I live, down southeast, had 52 donors. So it, there, it should be no surprise overall that you know, the, numbers, the numbers just don't lie. You know, uh, compared to District 10, I mean, District 2 had a fraction of the amount of people even giving money. And you look at uh, later on in the report, it goes through all the different districts, and one of the numbers that it talks about is registered voters. You know, District 1, 2, 3, 4, they don't break they don't even break fifty thousand dollars or fifty thousand registered voters, you know. Whereas uh, District eight, nine, ten, forty nine thousand, eighty one thousand, sixty five thousand, respectively. So you know you have more people engaged in the process. You have more people uh, that are registered to vote and are consistently uh, voting and engaged in politics. They're they're almost certainly going to be more likely to give money and to try and influence the outcome. That being said, you know, the numbers are difficult to fight on this. You know, uh, they've got, a, they've got a, a list at the end of the uh, TPJ report that talks about candidate profiles, and it shows the percent of money that, is, that was uh, contributed in the district for each potential candidate and the percent of money that came from out of district. You know, districts two and four I mean, nobody, I mean, Greg Kassar capped out at 8% of money uh, contributed to him from people inside his own district. Um, you know, uh, Gonzalo Camacho, that, that, I mean, he didn't raise very much, but all of it came from outside of the district. Um, you know, those lower income districts, there's just not enough money to go around, and there's not enough people contributing it. Um, and so they had to go to, to other sources to get that money. Whereas, uh, the, you know, the District 10 candidates, 60%, 50%, 66% came from inside the district, um, and it was split pretty evenly. That's because there's more money there. So a lot of people may be doom and gloom about these numbers. Um, I, I am not. I think it is uh, reflective of the, the split of the districts themselves um, and, you know, potentially the demographics and the age differences of people that live in different districts. District 10, I would wager, has a 
higher concentration of people in their uh, 40s, 50s, 60s that are also the more the people that are most likely to engage in politics and, and have the money to spend on it. Uh, people in districts one, two, three, four um, are are probably less less inclined to do so, either younger or less affluent. So um, it's it's not terribly surprising to me. What what I did want to point out uh, to close out here is that you know this is this report is being uh, used somewhat to bolster the idea and the proposal that's coming out for a voucher-based public campaign finance system uh, where uh, the, the city charter would be amended to give a, let's say, $100 voucher uh, to every citizen and they get to use that voucher of effectively free money um, to give to whoever they want. Um, and that would level the playing field in terms of people spending money. That would level the playing field so that um, everybody has that uh, essentially free disposable income to give to candidates. And so the idea is that um, it'll be more equitable regarding who's financing the campaigns. I don't think that's going to work. Um, first of all, it's going to be costly. Um, it would require a fully publicly financed campaign cycle, um, and that's that's going to have a pretty big bill behind it. Second of all, uh, it's not just money; it's engagement, and people that are engaged are more likely to give money. People that aren't engaged are very likely not going to give money at all. So. You know, those solely giving a free a voucher of a hundred dollars that has no monetary value except to give it to candidates, to people that are already disengaged from the political process and are disinclined to uh, even vote. I, I would wager probably less than five percent would even use it and give it to anybody, and most of them would just throw it in the trash. Um, and that's coming from a district, District 2, where, where I live. Um, uh, you know, you don't see, uh, just like in, 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 you know, Middle City, Allendale, um, West Side, you don't see yard signs for political candidates in my neighborhood. You just don't. Uh, people in my neighborhood are disengaged. And um, it, that's either a factor of socioeconomic status or that's a factor of uh, being young um, and not being engaged in voting. That's just a, a reality that, that we deal with. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that the $100 vouchers or whatever the amount is, is going to solve the issue. The other, pro the other problem with the, with the proposal that I see is that you're never going to stop the people that want to spend money on elections from spending money on elections. In fact, just yesterday, the Department of the Treasury and the IRS issued a statement that said that uh, they were no longer going to require 501c organizations, except for charities like C3s, um, from, uh, they're no, no longer going to require them to uh, submit the names and addresses, any personal identification uh, information of people that give them more than $5,000 a year on their 990. So uh, effectively, that means 
Uh, it is giving a uh, government legitimacy to any of these 501c4 organizations that are typically termed dark money. Uh, they're not going to require them to, to tell anybody who gave them more than $5,000. So that's going to embolden uh, groups that raise large amounts of money from people who want to remain anonymous to keep them anonymous. Um, you know, the city can the city can try to say whatever they want about restricting outside money in elections and uh, direct campaign expenditures or independent expenditures uh, in, in elections, but the Supreme Court, the IRS, the, the current uh, administration, they all uh, agree, uh, the FEC even, they all basically agree that um, the corporate money is considered uh, protected and is, and is able to be used on elections uh, regardless of where you are. The city can certainly try to uh, stop it if they want, uh, but I would, I would wager that they would go to court and they would probably lose uh, because many, many people have lost uh, in recent memory in trying to restrict corporations and nonprofits from engaging in the political process. So, you know, you can restrict people from giving uh, only $100 individually all you want, but that is not going to stop corporations and nonprofits from independently engaging in elections more frequently. I would wager that if you do cap it, you know, even if, even if it comes down from $350 max uh, contribution to a $100 voucher, uh, you know, people that wanted to give that 350 and would want to give even more if they weren't capped at the city level, they'll put that money to other uses, and it'll go to nonprofits and it'll go to uh, other organizations, corporations that are going to spend that money without anybody knowing where it's coming from, and they will be engaging in these elections one way or another because it's already happening. It has been happening in the past. So, uh, for those reasons, I don't know that. Uh, the voucher system will be the silver bullet. Um, is it a good idea? Yeah, it might be. Um, how it could be implemented, I'm not really sure, but um, uh, it, it, it's certainly not going to be the silver bullet that, that solves all of our issues. Um, really, the, the silver bullet uh, is much more complicated, um, and that really involves everybody engaging in politics um, engaging and getting to know their city council members, the candidates, um, and, and really making their voice heard at the local level uh, rather than really trying to rely on capping how much money people can pay for it. So uh, that's my take on it, and um, I look forward to uh, speaking with you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bingham Group Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Check the show notes for contact information. You can find more podcast episodes and learn more about the firm at www.binghamgp.com.